Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm your host, Mary Fran Johnson. I'm the CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media and a contributing columnist on CIO.com, where I write about boardroom strategies for technology leaders. Twice a month, we produce CIO Leadership Live with the generous support of CIO.com and our friends and colleagues in the CIO Executive Council. We're streaming live to you right now on LinkedIn and also on YouTube on IDG's Tech Talk channel. And we welcome all of our viewers to join in the conversation today by sending in questions of your own. We'll be watching for those questions and doing our best to pass them along to today's guest. And my guest today is Peter High, who is the founder and president of Metis Strategy. He's also the author of a newly released book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. This is a special edition of CIO Leadership Live today. I've asked Peter to come in and share some of the great takeaways and the lessons learned from all of the work and the research he did talking to world-class CIOs who fill the pages of this book, his third one. Introducing Peter is almost unnecessary for any IT leadership audience. His Washington DC based advisory firm, MetaStrategy, had just celebrated its 20th birthday. And during those two decades, Peter and his 30 advisors at Metis have been operating at the intersection of business technology, digital leadership, and innovation. They mostly serve clients such as CIOs, CTOs, or chief digital officers at Fortune 500 companies. He also counts among his clients a great number of CEOs of fast-growing enterprise software firms as well. And beyond all that, Peter is a significant media presence in our industry through his Technovation podcast, his Forbes.com Technovation column, and his Forbes CIO Summit series. He's a highly rated keynote speaker, and he's in great demand anywhere the technology leaders are getting together. Over the past decade or more, I've prevailed upon Peter many times to be my kickoff speaker at one of IDG's many CIO events, so I'm very pleased to be able to return the favor today by talking with him in greater detail about this latest book. Peter, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Mary Fran, it's such a pleasure. I'm I'm an enormous fan of your work, the CIO Leadership Live uh, uh, broadcasts and, and beyond your writing. It's, mm -hmm. it's always a pleasure to speak with you. So thank you so much for having me. Well, you're welcome. And I told Peter and I have, we've always gotten along really just great. And I told him recently, we're, start, we're in danger of becoming like one of those Chip and Dale cartoons where they're constantly appreciating each other and saying, no, no, after you, after you. <laughs> And let me start out, though, with a confession. Uh, I said this was a special edition of CIO Leadership Live because I'm really not in the business of talking with people about the books they've written. I usually talk directly with CIOs because when it comes to reading business books, my confession is that I'm a very light, fast scanner of them. I generally, the only thing that really holds my interest are the stories, are the detailed, interesting stories that, that people tell. And what I really liked about getting to Nimble and what I thought was such good work that you did and that we'll talk more about today is that you you use those stories to frame so much of the book. So you did a very nice job with that, Peter. Well, thank you very much, Mary Fran. That means a lot coming from you, somebody who is, is herself such a great storyteller. 
Yeah. Well, and has such a short attention span. I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't stick with that. You know, like the minute you get, I, I know you've written two previous books about IT strategy, and I'm sure they are quite wonderful. And they're probably just as full of stories as this one, but just the title itself was, but getting to nimble. Uh, before we get into the heart of all the lessons you have to share in the book, I wanted to zero in on defining what that title means, getting to nimble. Where did the idea come from that gave you this kind of defining narrative and your concept that runs throughout the whole book? Yeah, thank you, Mary Fran. So it came from our common dear friend, uh, Shami Mohammed, now the Chief Information Officer and Chief Technology Officer of CarMax. Yeah. Um, and so I, I had the great pleasure to interview him. This is in 2016, if I recall correctly, in Richmond, Virginia, where they are headquartered. Mm -hmm. And um, I, at the conclusion of my interview with him and my, my podcast, I asked him, as I often do, my interviewees, what are the trends that excite you as you look, let's say, three years out into the future? And as I recall, Mary Franny said uh, blockchain and machine learning and offered some thoughts as to how he thought those might apply in an organization like CarMax. Mm -hmm. But he concluded with some really interesting and, and interesting insight that stuck with me. He said, look, and I'm paraphrasing here, but a pretty tight one. Um, mm -hmm. if, if the time horizon is three years, the pace of change now is such that the number one priority may be something you and I can't name right now. That's how yeah. fast innovation is happening. Yes. So I need to develop an organization that is nimble, that can seize opportunities readily as they appear, while also mm -hmm. staving off issues as they appear as well. And as I was driving the couple hours back home to DC where I'm based from Richmond, that, that, that idea really played around in my head for a while. And, and it, was, yep. it started to create ties with other things that I had been speaking about with uh, my, my CIO clients and others who I'd interviewed as well. Mm -hmm. And it really seemed like a great framing mechanism from my perspective, because it is so important these days that organizations, yep. again, given that fast pace of change, that they do foster this nimbleness uh, and oftentimes, frankly, the reverse, and I tell some of the stories, as you'll recall in the book, of those organizations that were not nimble enough. And, and rather than riding the, the, the waves of change, they were, they were essentially driven by it and driven out of business in many cases as well. Yes. Or in some cases, they were nimble and very innovative in one area and then just sort of rested on their laurels. That's a, know, very well said. Uh, business schools are so full of those stories. We've all probably read books about uh, Circuit City and what happened to their business model and Kodak and how you can have an incredibly innovative technology right in your hands. But if your company is not structured to approach this idea of nimbleness, you will end up being one of those sad stories told at, at business schools. I, I also thought that there is uh, technology people tend when they think about nimble they tend to use terms that end up a little more over in the tech area like agile. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out when we were talking before, uh, agile is a very loaded term in our industry. And a lot of times to business people, it means something entirely different. So talk a little bit about that, about how a company being nimble is kind of different from the way we are more used to in our own technology industry thinking about agility. Yes, exactly. Well, agile. I, the reason why I say that it's a loaded term is there is a there's an origin story as it applies to technology in digital spaces. You know, the mm -hmm. agile manifesto and its its application to the development of new projects, for example. Uh, agility is a term I like, generally speaking, learning agility of teams, for mm -hmm. example, and and creating an, an agile culture, but. 
I, I think it's useful to have a term that's a bit broader, first of all, and is different enough such that that confusion isn't there, that we're not talking yes. about the development of projects. We're talking about a broader mindset. In fact, a, a structure that is all encompassing to include people, processes, technologies, ecosystem, mm -hmm. even the way in which strategy is formulated within an organization. And yes. so from my perspective, Nimble became that sort of all encompassing way of viewing that in a way that mm -hmm. Agile, because of its history, um, has some difficulty doing so. Right. Well, and I thought too, and and I don't know if this was a, a clever a clever marketing idea on your part or whether it just went together, but nimbleness also goes with everybody else's favorite verb during the pandemic, which has been pivot. Mm. To pivot companies that have pivoted. I, I've seen articles written about the pandemic pivot, and when you think about trying to pivot, if you're not nimble. You know, you can see you end up with one of those cartoon pratfalls where you land on your face. <laughs> so um, you were actually finishing this book up during the early months of the pandemic. It was, I think, the spring of 2020 when you were probably wrapping this up. How did that, uh, how did this incredible global business crisis around COVID, how did that have an impact on what you had done so far and what your conclusions were as you were wrapping up the writing? <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it was very interesting to reflect on that, Mary Fran. Indeed, mm -hmm. when I started the book in the early stages, several chapters in, it was still during mm -hmm. the longest bull market in the history of the United States. Yeah. And frankly, that that fact in and of itself, um, you know, I, I had ringing around in my head, this is not going to last forever. And obviously, I want to write a book that's going to have some relevance for, let's say, a decade, uh, if not beyond that. And so I certainly didn't want to write it even then as though, you know, the good times are here to stay. Uh, ad infinitum. Clearly, that's not the case. Now, of yeah. course, I'm not smart enough nor prescient enough to have known exactly how the, the bull market would end. Um, uh, but but if anything, with the rise of the pandemic, unfortunately, and of course, the health crisis that led to the financial crisis that has led to all sorts of other crises, mm -hmm. if anything, the themes from this I've found um, have become even more relevant. They've been underscored in some new ways. Uh, in as much as just as you say, during during the pandemic, one needs to pivot more readily. They need one needs to foster resilience in a variety of ways, and that resilience, in many ways, is based upon how nimble you are. If yours is a business that traditionally has done has, has garnered a uh, the lion's share of your revenue through physical channels, well, are you nimble enough to stand up or perhaps reemphasize your digital channels to take take back some of that revenue that you would have lost at least in the early stages, if not most of the pandemic? Um, right. Are your operations resilient enough uh, to be able to handle going primarily virtual if your business happened to do so, if, if you mm -hmm. had the luxury of being able to do business uh, more safely outside of, you know, your offices or your manufacturing sites, for example. Mm -hmm. Now that creates some, that, that necessitates operational resilience and nimbleness as well. Um, likewise, are, are you nimble enough in your people practices to ensure that your team is not only productive, but also safe and happy and, and uh, you know, that you're taking care of them in some some significant ways. So actually, it was interesting to go back, uh, Mary Fran, to the first several chapters that I had already completed and contemplate, is there anything that requires sort of a significant rethink or change as a result of all of this? And there was maybe a little bit of a change of emphasis or, of course, an acknowledgement of the pandemic in a, in a way that I would not have prior to it, needless to say. Uh, but thankfully, I found that the ideas, at least in my estimation, if anything, were you know underscored uh, as a result of what was happening in, in the world.
Well, I imagine too that because you actually started your company and I think wrote your first book right around the time the the great financial crisis of 2008 and 9 was happening or on the tail end of that. Did you find that there were a lot of echoes of the kind of lessons that companies learned in the first financial crisis that you could see they were applying today? I'm so glad you asked that question, Mary Fran. It's something I think about an awful lot. And indeed, my first book, World Class IT, was written in 2008. It would come out in 2009. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot that was resonating for me. And it was really interesting for me to reflect upon where what was the state of IT in 2008 compared to 2020, uh, now 2021. And one of the things that was really interesting for me was back then, and perhaps you remember this as well, Mary Fran, as, as deeply enmeshed in this community as you've been for, for some time as well, that IT on average was certainly not viewed as the most strategic of organizations. No way, still the primary relationship was through the CFO. Uh, and as a result of that, if you needed to cut costs, it was a pretty easy place to go. And moreover, unfortunately, uh, as IT, the style of IT back then uh, was these, you know, um, literally hard iron that you were oftentimes investing in technologies that had long amortization schedules, long cost schedules associated with it, that if you needed to cut cost, indeed, you'd probably go for people, your operating costs, including your people rather readily. And so what happened is, if anything, the outsourcing wave, which had had uh, begun in earnest in the decade prior, accelerated for a period of time as a result of the need to get rid of people, uh, need to let go of people as a result of the need to cut costs and the view that IT was a non-strategic area. So let's go there first before we go to the real talent of our organization. Right. What has been so remarkable this go around is the rethink that has happened over the course of the 12 years in between the two crises that mm -hmm. there were very few organizations i shouldn't say very few there were certainly some some organizations that were hit so badly one thinks of airlines or the hospitality space certain aspects of the restaurant business for restaurant example business. where yeah. of course even if you're a leader you're going to be hurt uh, in an existential way but all things being equal it's been really wonderful to see Number one, that IT, the best IT organizations especially, had rethought things such that there were a lot of other levers to pull when needing to tighten the belt, which of course is a prudent thing to do during a time when there's so many things that are outside of your control that will determine your success or lack thereof. Yes. But that also the people, um, although again, uh, certainly some people have had to be let go, it was uh, these exercises were done with a scalpel as opposed to a machete this, this time around. And I think it's indicative of how strategic IT organizations have become in that dozen dozen years between the two crises. Yes. Well, and I think, and fairly enough, I think that chief information officers are very cautious about patting themselves on the back too much because I, you know, if you've been around for any time at all, you remember what a big ballyhoo it was, the Y2K changeover just into the year 2000. And I remember at Computer World, you know, I we were writing things about how finally everybody's going to realize how important IT is and there was absolutely none of that you know yeah. i mean it was a great big kind of a big raspberry from the business community like yeah big deal you know you you the problem was your fault in the first place and now you fixed it 
today they're just and this could be again i may have blinders on because i talked to so many cios that have already figured this out so i know that my audience is selective here but i i see it even in regular people you see it all the people using video platforms today to do things like this like like our zoom conversation today that you never thought would happen so i think there's unique circumstances that have been driven by this global pandemic um, but before we start getting into too many of the wonderful takeaways and lessons, I want to start, I want to take you back up to that 30,000 foot view. We are very used to in our industry talking about, I, I don't know how many conversations I've had with CIOs where they frame it as, well, there's three things we have to worry about, people, process, and technology. What I really, what struck home to me, uh, someone who's been paying attention to this stuff for a long time, but maybe it takes things a while to land in my brain. You added two new themes to that that I hadn't given as much thought to before. And now I've gone from thinking of the big three to the big five, because to the people, process, and technology, you added ecosystem partnerships and strategy. And I, we should probably just be grateful that strategy is so high on the schedule of CIO mindsets these days, but I want you to talk about those uh, in, well, I'm sure we'll keep hitting on them, but start out with ecosystem partnerships. Why did that end up making it into your, I know you don't call them your big five, you call it the, um, the, the getting to nimble dashboard, uh, which is one of my favorite illustrations in your book, where you have all five of them laid out with the exact steps that CIOs and companies can take to evaluate how they're doing. Um, talk about the ecosystem partnerships and why that made it into such a top level consideration for you. Well, if you think about modern business, Mary Fran, it is much less Coke versus Pepsi, much less GM versus Ford, that is company to company, than it is ecosystem to ecosystem. Think mm -hmm. about the number of suppliers in a supply chain that are necessary in order to bring you know, products or services to, to bear. Think about the joint ventures that are necessary to do the same. Think about the outsourced partners that are required to provide contractors for the modern complex organization. These are all ecosystems that need to be managed well and effectively in order to run a great business today. And mm -hmm. likewise, technology and digital leaders have their own ecosystems if they run well, uh, that they need to leverage in order to draw insights and inspiration to validate hypotheses to solve problems and ultimately to bring products to bear as well. And mm -hmm. so from my perspective, it's really important that CIOs think outside of their organization in curating a great ecosystem. And if you'll indulge me a moment, Mary Fran, I'll give you the four, uh, the four layers of the ecosystem that I define. Sure. Uh, number one, and you know this so well, uh, as well as anyone, CIO jobs rhyme. Even if it's a B2B compared to a B2C, the people mm -hmm. that hold those, those titles and, are, and, and have those personas are likely to have a lot. The Venn diagram is going to have a nice uh, overlap to the things that it's they're doing, there. such mm -hmm. that they can learn a lot from each other. Um, yes. And as a result of that, having a great group of trusted technology and digital executives to whom you can turn, as I, as I mentioned, to test a hypothesis, to uh, weigh a supplier you're thinking about engaging, to you know uh, talk about a security breach that has happened, perhaps confidentially, to have a faster pathway towards resolving that, an essential ingredient for the modern technology and digital executive. Secondly, the venture capital community. VCs are investing in the technology of tomorrow. And again, if you're going to be thinking in the, into the future and, and uh, uh, parlaying the art of the possible back to your organization, 
administration and to its executives, understanding where smart money is being spent and why becomes that much more important. And understanding what tech trends are, are represented, are personified by which entrepreneurs and their companies such that you might be able to invest in those. The last two are executive recruiters who are essential sources of insight as to uh, organizational designs that might be relevant to you, skills that are rising or falling, as the mm -hmm. case may be, as well as, quite frankly, why are your peers failing? Since, of course, they're the ones who are oftentimes replacing those who have done so. Important yeah. insights to get to gain. And then the last one is strategic partners. Um, so, in, mm -hmm. again, if yours is a large going concern, there are a number of strategic partners, vendor partners that you are engaging. And all too often, they are thought of as fulfillers of work as opposed to sources of inspiration. Presumably, you choose them because of the amount of work that they do with companies of comparable size and complexity to your own, not to tap them for insights that might lead to innovations or new ideas at a minimum for your organization means you're only getting a part of the value you should out of those relationships. Well, and I think too, those vendor relationships, because that's always been a kind of a, a push-pull type of relationship with CIOs. Sometimes they feel a little put upon and, and set upon by vendors because the relationship feels too transactional. Mm -hmm. But the ones that have done that kind of homework where they sit down and they're not talking maybe to the sales to the sales manager for their region, but to the CEOs of those companies or the people that are running the, the customer areas, um, they sit down and they start forming these strategic partnerships. And any CIO I've ever talked to can tell you in a heartbeat what the difference is when they can have that strategy level conversation with somebody who understands their business, who knows how they're using technology, and essentially becomes another stream of brainstorm that they can tap into, which is, yes. is just so valuable. Uh, we have our first question from our alert listeners and our audience out there. Um, and we'll find out, can Peter articulate his understanding of IT risk and how it applies to IT in today's world, especially when focusing on being nimble and agile? So yeah, a... we're going to dive right into it. That The questions from the audience are often a lot better than mine. So, <laughs> so, so let's go with that. Can you articulate uh, that understanding of IT risk and how it plays when you focus into being nimble and agile? It's an essential question. Thank you to, to, to whoever provided that question. I appreciate it. So the, one of the complexities of the modern technology and digital executive is this uh, necessity to balance out innovation, which is about mm -hmm. risk taking. If you are batting a thousand, to use the baseball analogy, you are certainly not innovating. So it is mm -hmm. risk taking. It means that from time to time, you're going to swing and miss and that's okay. With yeah. risk mitigation, the, 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 the essential element of the question. Um, and getting that balance correct. One, one thinks, for example, mm -hmm. of the risk to be mitigated around cybersecurity, for example, but there are a whole range of others in terms of the ecosystem yeah. you're putting together and whether you, you're developing essential relationships with companies that may or may not be around for a certain period of time. Again, a risk that needs to be mitigated as well. Mm -hmm. And so getting that balance correct and ensuring that the rest of the leadership team, and I'm, I'm speaking outside of the technology, technology and digital realm within your enterprises, becomes yeah. essential as well, because you need to be communicating to them, look, we are going to be accepting some risk. We must, again, if we're going to innovate, then we must be accepting some risk, but let's understand what risks those are. And let's ensure together we are deciding this is the level of risk tolerance we have as a business so that we can walk arm in arm with confidence going forward, understanding the implications of that. And, and let's remember, so that some risks are going to be realized. That is to say, there, there may be issues around the corner from time to time. So it also means 
having a plan in place and doing a lot of scenario planning as to, okay, if this mm -hmm. risk emerges, what will we do? What is the game plan? What is the pathway to business continuity, to disaster recovery? Um, you know, I, I, I uh, briefly allude in the book to how uh, when I started working with chief information officers and security became a topic that was rising in importance there, mm -hmm. oftentimes as I was working with them, at least initially and in helping them gauge and measure performance of the organization, that the metric associated with cybersecurity is we will have zero cybersecurity issues. And I, I would counsel my my uh, my clients. You realize, of course, that if you say that, then you, you, you are you doing the preparation necessary that should that not come to pass? And especially mm -hmm. in a day and age now, of course, where there are so many bad actors that are well funded and unfortunately very very smart, they yes. they may find a pathway into your organization without having the great game plans in place for, with a pathway back to business continuity. Well, you know, obviously that's operating in an irresponsible way. So yeah. getting that balance correct, communicating it effectively, ensuring the rest of the organization understands the implications of that and proceeding forward with great game plans should risk emerge, should should, should issues emerge, really mm -hmm. is the pathway to long-term success here. Well, and I and you go into a great deal of detail on various points about cybersecurity planning and that sort of stuff in your book. And um, just since I've already confessed to being a lightweight when it comes to reading business books, I kept scanning through looking for the people's stories illustrating that. Um, the in fact uh, that um, that that one that came to mind was about uh, you used Amazon as an example of. Uh, not not necessarily just security, but the idea that you have to that you have to be really good at failing at things because yeah. it has to be that virtuous cycle where you fail and learn and move forward. Um, I think everyone tends to think that Amazon is what they are today because of how clever they were with the way they use data, but it it certainly played into a lot of the other stories that you told. Um, let me see, we had another follow-up question and that was also about privacy and security in a more nimble environment. And I think what you're essentially saying is that it has to be baked in almost from the get-go. Um, but that raises another question and you address this directly in the book where you say, how do you become a great technology, a business technology organization if you don't start out that way? And one of the stories, and it's it's been told in other venues as well, is Rob Alexander and what mm -hmm. he's done at um, Capital One. Um, talk a little bit to that point that if you start out as a great technology, you know, everyone kind of assumes Walmart was always an amazing technology organization. And probably they have been since maybe the 90s, but maybe not in 1975, right? <laughs> but um, so uh, talk a little bit about that, about how technology organizations can get to nimble if they didn't start out with all of these great ideas in hand. Yeah, that's I thank you for raising that one. Rob, the, the story of Capital One and Rob Alexander is one of my favorites. So Rob, who's been enrolled for more than a decade and a half now, uh, came into that role. He'd been been in the role and was promoted was within the company rather and was promoted. And it was a you know it was a, it was a great Gregor Baylor, a name you know quite well, uh, mm -hmm. was his predecessor and a fine chief information officer as well. Uh, yeah. But in the balance, had you know leveraged outsourcing to a, to a reasonable extent, mm -hmm. and I think. Um, I, I so don't want to speak for him, but it was an organization I believe that had, as so many even very good uh, uh, organizations 15 or 16 years ago, um, mm -hmm. had a bias towards buying as opposed to building technology. Yes. And 
this was, was very trendy in the 80s and 90s. Everyone oh, indeed. Talk like that. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I, I would argue actually into well, well into the 2000s as well. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and as a result of that, Rob Alexander had a different vision for this. He said, look, mm -hmm. when, we, when we lose our great technologists in our firm, we are losing them to you know, Silicon Valley type organizations, whether physically there or with that mindset in communities like Boston or Austin or uh, New York City or others. Mm -hmm. And how do we create a talent factory where this is the destination? We're actually taking the talent away from those kinds of companies and because they are so uh, uh, pleased with what they're finding in an environment like ours. Mm -hmm. And really what he did was think about develop going from sort of a traditional IT mindset to an engineering mindset. And it, it's more than just words, Mary Fran. It's, it's really understanding that, look, we are going to build our destiny. We are going to develop great ideas, great products, homegrown, and use the, the, the latest technology. We will continue to strive to, to build the skills of tomorrow as opposed to resting on the laurels of the skills of today or yesterday. Mm -hmm. And we will do so from the bottom up. And this is a really interesting nuance, again, if you'll indulge me for a moment longer. So a lot of organizations, as they think about that kind of cultural change, they think about, okay, what direct reports to me, the CIO, do I need to be putting mm -hmm. in place in order to make this happen? And I don't wanna say that Rob never hired at the senior levels. But in the balance, he chose the long game on this. And what he did was he developed a, an intern program that was the model. If you go today to vault.com, it is the number one rated, or at least recently has been the number one rated internship in the US, believe it or not. And what, he, what they did was at first uh, tens of people, now hundreds of people uh, uh, within their undergrad programs or their graduate programs will spend a summer at Capital One, be given really meaty, interesting issues to help resolve and puzzles to solve. And at the conclusion, the best of them, the yield they get on the invitations for full-time employment are extraordinarily high. Mm -hmm. And the advantages are a couple of different things. Number one, you are bringing people who have the latest and greatest technologies as the ones they've just most recently been trained on as engineers mm -hmm. or computer scientists, et cetera. But you also are building from the bottom up, you're pulling them through your culture, as opposed to bringing in a new SVP or VP level person who may be already a bit more set in their ways and may have a more difficult path to adjusting to a new culture. You bring them in, you inculcate them as to what's special about your organization. And for those that are equipped to do so, pull the best of them through your organization quickly up to leadership positions. So it's the longer term game. It's not a light switch and then you're there, but it is something that's more sustainable if you've got the patience to do this. And now with a 16 year uh, and, and somebody who had the vision to stay for a while and, and, and did the work to do so, uh, mm -hmm. he, he was afforded the opportunity to build this amazing talent factory that is now in place in Capital One that really changed the culture of the organization. Well, and there are so many of the companies that you feature in your book that do similar things. I know that uh, Shamim does that at CarMax, uh, the, the CIO there at CarMax, and also our longtime friend, I think he's, he's left now as the CIO and Chief Strategy Officer, but Lyndon Tennyson at yes. Union Pacific. Yes. You don't think of a railroad company uh, or a transportation distribution uh, giant like Union Pacific as being a, a hotbed for innovative internships, but he made it one of those. And didn't he say it was one of the best programs they had ever launched? Indeed, that's absolutely right. And let's remember, unlike uh, Capital One, which is headquartered in the Washington DC suburbs, this is an organization that's based in Omaha. Nothing wrong with Omaha, but not a hotbed for technology talent necessarily. <laughs> yeah. And, no. and uh, as a result of that, he really needed to think creatively about how do we get people to come here? Uh, and as a result, what he did was he chose, I think it was 10 or 12 
Midwestern, uh, the, the best Midwestern programs for engineering and computer science. He developed long-term relationships with those universities. And then when people would come to Omaha for the summer, he would make sure that even though they were well compensated, they barely spent a dime on food, entertainment, all sorts of even, even housing. They would, they would uh, put them up at a local university that had, had rooms available. And so most of what they were making through their internship was banked. And the people who, the younger members of the technology team would engage them throughout. They'd go out for bowling or for movies or for a nice, uh, nice dinner and some drinks uh, mm -hmm. and really, again, immerse them in the culture as to what was special there. And a yes. remarkable percentage of them would, would choose to come back uh, full time. And so, again, a great example of thinking long term in terms of the way in which you develop those talent factors. Yes. Well, and there's so many of our, our mutual CIO friends who do things like this. I know that uh, Sanjay Shringapur has done this, Ian J. Gallo, Gallo yeah. because he's got the same issue being out in Modesto, California. And his internship program there is just quite phenomenal. And I, I hear that more and more. And, and I love that because it's just when you talk to some of those, that first crop of CIO Hall of Famers, you mentioned Gregor Baylor. Uh, Gregor yeah. was in our 1997 very first crop of wow, the CIO yes. Hall of Famers, as was Charlie Feld. And you start the book out with Charlie's whole story about what happened at Frito-Lay, for instance. But a lot of these uh, folks went on to other very significant business roles afterwards. And in, in many of the tales that you share during uh, in the book, there a number of them are the cautionary tales, some of the ones I think we've all heard about, and a lot of inspiring stories as well. But there was one that I zeroed in on right away because it's um, I, I thought it was a bit of both. It was a cautionary tale and an inspiring one. Uh, and really resonated with me about the Washington Post, about the newspaper business. And this is, I think, long before Jeff Bezos and Amazon got involved with an infusion of cash. Uh, talk about talk about that whole story and what the CTO did there. And I, and I noticed not just coincidentally, he's been there as the CIO CTO for well more than a decade. So there is something to be said, I've always believed in a longevity of CIOs. Uh, but anyway, go on, tell us the story about what happened at the Washington Post. Yeah, well, gosh, you know, you you know so well as an old newspaper person yourself and somebody who's been <laughs> in, 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 that, uh, in that field previously. Um, yeah. It, that that it's a it's a space that has had a lot of forces exerted upon it. Think about the number. I'm sure there are papers you you read growing up, just as there are papers I read growing up that or my family did that are no longer exist. And uh, that's true across the the landscape. And the post mm -hmm. was no was no exception in terms of those forces being exerted upon it. You go back, you know, ten years, and readership was going down. Advertising dollars were going to places like Facebook and Google. And, um, and ultimately, they were not able to invest in the, the talent that made the company special, the reporters, the columnists, and so forth. Right. So everything yeah. seemed to be heading in the wrong direction. Now, one thing that I think it's important to know, Donald Graham, the scion of the, of the famous mm -hmm. family behind the Washington Post, was actually no, no Luddite. He was on the, the Facebook board. He yes. was somebody that was actually progressive in his thinking with regard to technology. Mm -hmm. And one of the great moves he made was to bring Shailesh Prakash on as, as chief information officer, as you note, a bit more than a than a decade ago. And Shailesh, in some ways, even more impressive than the story of, uh, of Capital One, only in as much as the environment he found, yes. um, also had this vision of making this an engineering-centric organization. And whereas there were uh, basically parallel tracks at the paper of traditional media and digital media, uh, certainly, of course, some of the content was shared, but the way in which those different parts were like rails of a, of a, of a railroad yes. and never, never to meet. 
And yes. his vision was, look, we need to make this one organization. And frankly, that's in some ways the should be the goal of any digital transformation, that we will begin with digital marketing and marketing, and it will become just one thing. We'll start mm -hmm. with digital sales and sales, and it just becomes one it thing. Becomes one thing, right. Exactly. Likewise, he was thinking in a similar way, where they had a digital first mentality. Um, and as a result of that, so a lot of this happened pre-Jeff Bezos. A lot of people would, would hear this story and say, well, it's run by you know the wealthiest man on earth, who's himself the greatest technologist around. Around, but actually, mm -hmm. this was a vision that was started it's well really before not. that investment. Yeah. And um, as a result of that, he really changed the culture yet again. And I'll just, again, one more story related to him. He, uh, as he went about solving problems, he found that one of the greatest issues was the platform that they were publishing on. Uh, it was kludgy. It was uh, difficult at times. And of course, mm -hmm. as when, in, in an industry where, you know, minutes matter for to get scoops, uh, having a great platform actually is a, an essential element. So he developed, he and his team developed a new platform that was so successful and so well received that it dawned on him, wait a second, we've solved something for one of the most important papers in the world. Maybe this mm -hmm. is something that actually other periodicals might want, wish to use as well. And yeah. so he initially went to universities and gave it to them for free, a handful of them, again, to validate its use outside of the organization. Mm -hmm. And then eventually went to more traditional uh, media players around the world. This is now becoming a $100 million business for the Washington Post. And he now, he, Shailesh, has been rewarded by, by not only being the CIO, but the chief product officer for the entire organization. He's become a consigliere to Bezos and is in fact even on the board of Blue Origin, Bezos's space uh, or organization. Mm -hmm. So yeah. really enormously influential in this space. Well, and I thought too, just that whole shift from project to product management, um, which I knew you detail various angles of that story from other companies. I thought what was really fascinating was that he didn't just try to get data engineers. He got, you know, like, old newspaper reporters to get into this because the leading digital talent at any media organization these days usually has some journalism background as well as yeah. technology background. And I thought that that part was, was just really inspiring. Um, there is a question that I think is a really good one to bring up at this point from our alert listeners. Uh, is the cross-pollination of learning from industry to industry, is that working as well as it might and are there any thoughts that you have on whether there are more things that could be done that should be done? And let's we can we can issue a call to action to all of our CIO friends to get in on this. So choose your words carefully here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that is oftentimes where the greatest inspiration is. And thank you to whoever it is that posed that question. I, I find that although it's very important, of course, to have a strong cadre of fellow technology and digital executives in your own industry, because mm -hmm. of course, I mean, so long as you're not sharing those that the the, the key, giving away the keys of the castle and sharing that which is proprietary to your organization, it is good to have a you know a a group of people to turn to who have relevant similar experiences to your own. Mm -hmm. But I would say oftentimes it is when you find yourself um, in in one on one conversations or group settings with people who are not in your industry that oftentimes the greatest insights can happen for a couple of reasons. First of all, you can actually peel back the onion a little bit further without uh, you know a, a worry of giving away the keys to the castle. Again, Coke to Pepsi to use sort right. of a, right. a, 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 a traditional uh, um, example of that. But beyond that, as I mentioned earlier, there's enough that, that rhymes between these jobs that uh, 
there, the, the overlap of the Venn diagram is meaningful in terms of the shared sets of responsibilities, but it's actually, mm -hmm. in many cases, the, the portion of the Venn diagram that doesn't overlap where the greatest ideas can happen. By hearing a story told by a peer in a very different company, different industry to your own, yes. and translating that back into your environment. It may take mm -hmm. a little bit of time to think about, okay, what are the broader implications to what she or he has just said to me? What's mm -hmm. the application back to my organization? But boy, if you do that well, that's oftentimes the idea that no one else has, it hasn't yet occurred to anyone in your industry. And thus the opportunity to develop some really profound uh, um, value to your organization by way of uh, maybe a new product, for instance, a new offering, a new way of doing things, a process change of some sort, yes. that those really can be uh, tremendous value additions for your organization. Well, and, and of course, over the years, we've both seen that operating in real time when we've been able to get people together in a room at the conferences. I'm, I'm not sure that we're seeing it as much in today's virtual events, but there's at least some shadows of it there that I think are very helpful. But I, anytime at any of our events that I would say, okay, you know, take five minutes to talk amongst yourselves about this particular topic, the room would absolutely explode. And it's that ability to, to share with each other. I, I've said for many years that a CIO is a CIO is a CIO across different industries. They, I think the reason they're not fiercely competitive with each other or even with you know a, a competing business is because they're trying to solve so many of the same problems. Um, I want to I want to pivot and talk about um, growing data cultures throughout a company or digital literacy. I've been hearing it in, in the many conversations that we both have with CIOs. I know we've both been talking with them a lot about people issues and empathy and how they're dealing with, you know, workers at home during the pandemic and all. But I'm also hearing more about taking advantage of all of the cross-functional teams that are operating now to do more about advancing. One of our uh, mutual friends is the CIO of a large insurance company, and she calls it the data culture. And you know, like becoming more of a data culture. You talked a little bit about you know becoming a, a product management organization. When you think about companies really advancing their own digital literacy and their data cultures, what are what are some of the stories that Come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, this is really, I think, an important uh, area of change and emphasis in in technology and digital organizations that mm -hmm. that I'm encouraged by. Uh, data is everywhere, of course. If yours is a large organization, whether you, whether you have your arms around it or not, data is being produced at, at record paces. And mm -hmm. it's important to harness that in order to develop better decisions to understand your operation, your employees, mm -hmm. your, your customers, ultimately, the health of and or lack thereof of your products and services, and, and to make adjustments based upon what you are what you're learning and gleaning from that. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting, let me let me share a little bit of data uh, from, from over the past year. At a number of the gatherings that I have, multiple multiple hundreds of people that I had a chance to pull, one of the really uh, one of the really uh, wonderful and optimistic aspects, even during the pandemic, was as we were tracking areas of emphasis for technology and digital leaders, mm -hmm. uh, initially in the pandemic, security, uh, the need for better, you know, unified and collaborative collaboration technologies uh, were areas of emphasis for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. I'd say come June or so, it flipped such that data became data analytics uh, as a broad tech category was rising to the top again. And this is really, I think, a great story of 
again, thinking beyond the pandemic, thinking about the opportunities that are that, that uh, better use of data yeah. might be able to provide, especially during times where you're going through a lot uh, that is unprecedented. You know, mining the data becomes that much more because your gut instincts actually in some ways can work against you if that's what you're, what you're uh, basing your decisions on. Mm -hmm. And so, but the, when, when I would ask the second question to those same groups of, of technology and digital executives as to how uh, mature is your data strategy that your practice is centered around that, very low numbers on that. And this represents a, a lot of opportunity for technology leaders and digital leaders today is yes. that focus and emphasis on, the, on a better data strategy to understand mm -hmm. what is it exactly that we're going to be doing here? How do we get our arms around this? As you alluded to, who do we need to engage from across the organization in order to do this well? That's oftentimes part of the complexity of this. But just as agile, DevOps, uh, the, the move towards a product orientation, certainly mm -hmm. data orientation, all of these are representative themes that, are, that represent uh, creating more permeable silos to the organization, where you mm -hmm. have resources and collaborations that are happening with unusual bedfellows relative to the past, yes. and an opportunity to add a lot of value at the intersection of those disciplines. And so mm -hmm. data strategy is no different than that. But what I would say is, especially for data strategy, because if you one of the reasons why the chief data officer's average tenure is still only about a year now, and so a lot of people are going into that role and then not very successful in it, is there is a perception that this person's coming in to start to take over my autonomy. They're diving into my data, which I own today, and I, I, that doesn't feel very comfortable to me. So change management, communications, um, these become really essential elements when you're embarking on these data journeys to do it effectively and, in, and with strong partnerships with the various people who have traditionally owned this data in the different parts yeah. of your organization. Well, and I love too the, um, the surprise factors that turn up when you have more of that diversity and cross-functional team communication. Um, tell the story about Sandy Dadlani, who mm -hmm. is the chief digital officer at Mars and how he ended up developing a digital curriculum that went beyond the IT organization. I love this story. <laughs> oh, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, Sandeep mm -hmm. is just a phenomenal leader and one of these blue flame thinkers when you speak with him when it, in terms of just the what way in which he's term? oriented his team. And, and so he, mm -hmm. um, he recognized that in order to really have a digital first mentality and a data centric mm -hmm. mentality that it was not enough just to train those people whose primary sets of responsibilities would be in those domains. And actually uh, it, it almost, it happens sort of by accident in terms of determining how well to do this. So he, he, started, he started to develop some of this curriculum in partnership with mm -hmm. others, of course, mm -hmm. and initially was going to roll this out to the people, log logically, I think as a starting point, to the people who were whose primary domain domains were those areas. Right. And accidentally sent it off to the like the majority of the organization. And he found that thousands of people were taking these courses. There was such demand for it. And it was this remarkable aha moment that, wait a second, this is something that, 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 that can be pulled into our organization as opposed to the need to push mm -hmm. it through the rest of the organization. And his vision is, Let's get everyone at least to, not everyone needs to be like an expert necessarily. They don't need to be PhD levels of, of familiarity with these topics. But if we can get a base level of knowledge across our, our organization that is fairly high, our ability to take advantage of, of these disciplines rises tremendously. And the way he's oriented it, a very aggressive and I think great aspirational goal is we are gonna create a hundred times the speed of our operation uh, as a result of these changes that we're, we're embarking on. Really, uh, I think a, a, a remarkable the leadership that he is, he's had there and the change that he's already fostered as a result of this vision. 
Excellent. Well, and you mentioned another, there was another pair of magic words in there that I think CIOs talk about so much, change management. Mm. And the whole story around what the Google CIO, Ben Freed, has been, he's another CIO who's been in position for a long time. Yeah. And I mean, think about the innovative the innovative thinking that goes on at Google and the constant inventing and reinventing. Uh, talk about his communication plan, how Google ended up making change one of their core competencies. Yeah, that's again, one of my favorite stories. So I, mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time with Ben uh, and he and I were at a conference in Mexico over multiple days. So we got to really spend a lot of time together. Oh, and cool. so we, 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 we um, I was, I asked him, look, as you, Google is now a behemoth of an organization. How do you maintain this sort of entrepreneurial spirit and ability to quickly seize opportunities? Uh, you know, many of the sort of like pre uh, predecessors of these nimble themes that I wanted to explore with him. And he's, and, and his answer was what you just mentioned that we have made and, and kept change is a core competence. We recognize that change is going to be the, the only constant in business. And as a result of that, we need to hire people that are very comfortable with it. And one of my favorite stories to tell uh, for technology and digital groups that I'm speaking with, because I think it's something that's so easy to implement and yet can, it can offer tremendous value to your organization is his idea of bureaucracy busting. Um, so he has multiple days per year, he solicits ideas from the broader Google team as to where bureaucracy is rearing its ugly head. And a list is accumulated, it can be voted up some of these things that are particularly mm -hmm. onerous issues, at least in the estimation of Googlers. And uh, mm -hmm. they do an evaluation of which of these are things that we can solve quickly and cheaply, which ones will take more work, etc. And they, they get to prioritizing these and they work their way down the list. And there are a couple of things that are great about this. Number one, it orients the entire team, the entire company, as to the, the value that the technology division is providing to the rest of the organization by solving these issues that have been articulated. A great way to establish and continue to have a, a strong reputation in the broader enterprise. But the other aspect of it is, if you do this often enough, people's radars are reset. And as a result of that, people are aware, wait a second, this, this feels to me like the next bureaucracy day, busting day may, may not be for a quarter from now, but this yeah. is something I need to take note of because when that comes up, I want to make sure that we are, we're solving this. Or, or indeed, maybe I, I will uh, go solve this myself if I, if I have some time with, it, with a partner of mine. And all of a sudden, you know, with these people awake to these, these uh, opportunities for continued improvement, um, a lot of the what what would be emerging as bureaucracy in an organization as large and as complex as Google's can actually be resolved uh, before it becomes a such an onerous issue as to be be so difficult to tackle. Yeah, well, and it's interesting. Google has innovated in so many areas. I remember reading years ago about how they basically created their own. HR system. You know, they didn't buy one of the popular packages everybody uses. They wanted specific ways to reward different behaviors. They've got a very thriving technical star kind of track, but uh, allowing people to also dip into management areas and that sort of thing. Um, I, I was thinking as you were, uh, as we were reminded of the, the Google story and, and this bureaucracy busting, that we've all had so many more conversations, I think, in the last year about company cultures. Because every CIO I think we've both spoken to has a certain amount of concern about what is happening to our culture? You know, the way things get, the, the things that they pride themselves on are a lot of those have happened in face-to-face -face interactions. 
Um, so I want you to go into your three recommendations that you like to encourage for cultures. And they were change, productive way to disagree, and team collaboration. And the really important point about not taking any of this for granted. Yeah. Talk about some of the things that some of the, the wisdom you've shared in the book around that. Yeah. It's so culture, unlike strategy, if you don't, mm -hmm. even if you do nothing with it, there is a culture there. Uh, and so, you know, cultures not emerge. acknowledging it. Mm -hmm. That's right. Exactly right. And so it's the sort of thing where, especially if you're not taking the bull by the horns and defining those things that are mm -hmm. sacred to your organization, it can develop in ways that are outside of your control and perhaps deleterious to the motives you actually have as to where the organization should be going and the sorts of people you wish to hire and the sorts of skills mm -hmm. or, or norms uh, that you wish to make the norm for your organization. Mm -hmm. And so it's essential that that uh, companies, companies writ large, but also divisions of companies like the technology and digital space define for themselves, what is it that we stand for? What are the yeah. things that are our cultural touchstones that we want to make sure that we are rewarding people based upon, hiring based upon, uh, training for, even engaging external partners that have those same sorts of behaviors. And so that I think is an important aspect of this. And as you point out, yes, change is going to be in every organization, change is coming. And as, as mm -hmm. the examples you gave of Circuit City and Kodak and others that I mentioned in the book, these are organizations that didn't change fast enough. So culturally they were not nimble. Uh, and as a result of that, they paid in the case of Circuit City, they paid the ultimate um, yes. cost as a result of that. But it also means that as you were defining the cultural norms, even in an organization that's in some sort of turnaround scenario, that you mm -hmm. pay some respect to the history of the organization. Because let's say you are a new executive that is taking over a team and you're, you're doing so after a leader that has been let go and so perceived to not have been successful. Well, the people, uh, uh, the preponderance of people are still going to remain from the past administration, may, maybe many administrations ago. And those are gonna be some of the most important people who will help you get the change across. If you're coming them to say, look, everything is broken and I am the savior, you're, you're going to be turning off the very people who need to be in your corner to, to enact it's that be a change. lot of eye rolling from the Exactly, exactly right. And, yeah. and so yeah. important to acknowledge, look, we got to pull some threads from our history to acknowledge mm -hmm. the great work that has gotten us to this robust size as an organization, while also recognizing we're going to chart a new pathway in some meaningful areas as well. Mm -hmm. And so identifying those threads to pull and the people who, who are perhaps representative of some of those really important aspects become very important also. Yeah, I want to also just one one other quick point I'll, I'll mention relative to that, Mary Fran, is mm -hmm. our, our, our friend who you've mentioned before, Charlie Feld, who's done a lot of analysis of this in terms of mm -hmm. change agents. It takes a lot less people than you would think, as it turns out, actually, mm -hmm. to enact these sorts of changes. But it means identifying the right kinds of people um, and the sorts of kind of charisma that they have, the internal networks that they have brought together and finding, you know, it could be even in an organization that may be hundreds or even a thousand people uh, large, it's, it's, it oftentimes is in the low double digits in terms of the kinds of people who can help you enact this change. But it does mm -hmm. mean finding the right people of, of great influence, of great reputation, uh, again, who are highly networked within the organization and giving them what could actually be, be viewed as a plum assignment to help enact some of these changes to get us to this destination, this new, this new pathway that we're envisioning for ourselves. So absolutely right. I think is an essential element for, for the nimble organization is, is ensuring that you have well-defined and well-articulated cultural elements. Well, and it was it was fun. One of the early stories you tell in your book is about what Char the changes Charlie made at Frito-Lay. And one of them to, to change the culture, he started basically putting a lot of PCs, which were new at that time. He started putting PCs on desks and getting essentially 
evangelists uh, throughout the organization. Um, I Because I remember there was a big fad for a long time where uh, CIOs would come in and discover that IT was off on this island and the rest of the business was over here. So they would start doing things like appointing someone a business relationship manager. You know, and that one person would end up being essentially, I've always pictured it as kind of a bridge. You know, and IT was always going halfway over the bridge and beckoning to the people on the business side and saying, come on, meet us halfway. And nobody wanted to. And then they'd send one lonely warrior over into the business side. What do you think is happening with that model today, with the ability for, uh, I wonder if it's just as company cultures are changing, if it's just, if it's changing itself because of all of these nimble, agile teams that you have cross-functional business and tech people, so much of it, as you keep pointing out, comes down to communication. Uh, what do you see happening to functions like those, like a business relationship manager position, because it's been identified as something that company needs is that just a first step toward changing the culture well i think it's a it's an let's say it's a very important step in changing the mm -hmm. culture that you need to find these people who are going to be expert in in technology and the discipline that they're aligned with so let's say it's yes. a marketing a marketing business information officer or business relationship manager depending upon how the how it's framed mm -hmm. that 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 person who is is aligned with the marketing uh department participates in the strategy sessions of both divisions of the organization, hopefully early mm -hmm. in both. And so such that uh, he or she can be influential in both directions, but also is receiving training as to the modern practices that are the elements of each as well. So that they're Absolutely. speaking with marketers as a marketer, but also representing technology as somebody who's deeply, uh, deeply aware of the trends rising of relevance to this organization as they're speaking with their marketing colleagues. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a wonderful way to find these these great people who are, you know, willing to take on this cross-disciplinary set of experiences and enact change in some really remarkable ways. And, you know, if you find the right people and can assemble that, that group well, let's say you've got four or five of these people that are aligned with different parts of your organization, they then become this little club that can share a lot of insights very rapidly as to how demand is being shaped across the organization. Because a lot of what you want to be doing, of course, is as you hear from one division of the organization that there is this demand for, you know, uh, artificial intelligence. Let's off the top mm -hmm. of my head, a, a key trend, of course, it's on the in the minds and on the lips of so many executives today. So, you know, the marketing division is saying they need some artificial intelligence tools and the way in which they're articulating it, boy, it sure does sound very similar to what we're hearing out of our operations colleagues. And, you know, um, left to their own devices, they may be making uh, uh, investments in each of those areas that are not combining uh, the forces and, and, and leveraging the tools that we're putting forth as a, as a technology division. And so mm -hmm. if we can get an early read as to how this demand is being is coming about and shape that demand such that there's a more comprehensive strategy associated with the, the artificial intelligence, this fictional example of mine for, for mm -hmm. multiple parts of the organization, then you have this, this scenario that from, from a cost perspective, one plus one equals one. And from a value perspective, one plus one equals three. And that's really where I think a lot of the value of this comes. Okay. I got a little alarmed when you started throwing math in there, but I, I was with you. I was with you on the one plus one equals three two part. Let us. I I knew this would happen. Our 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 hour has flown by here. I just want to, you to leave some people with parting advice. I mean, other than. Uh, go read Getting to Nimble. You explain all of these things in wonderful detail that, you know, even a layperson can follow pretty, pretty solidly there. But what do you think is the most important 
a kind of focus opportunity we have now as we are hopefully coming out on the other side of this global crisis and the pandemic. And what would you like to see CIOs and their business colleagues doing over the next year going forward? I would say this is a time to be bold, Mary Fran. The, the, the pandemic has underscored the importance, the, the really strategic importance that great technology and digital leaders and their teams have mm -hmm. for their organizations. I would say all things being equal, these are executives and their teams who have fostered resilience that has kept organizations alive and thriving in many cases, actually, during mm -hmm. very uncertain and difficult times. This is a time to be bold, to recognize, look, there, there have been advances that have been made thanks to the, the great work of my team. And so we need to become the educators as to the art of the possible in the next wave of growth, hopefully, that let's let's hope is, 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 is weeks or months away. And yes help shape this vision for the rest of the organization as to the role the technology and digital can play, the data can play, all the themes that we've been talking about to, mm -hmm. to, to add really remarkable value uh, for our company. And I think this is, it is, it is, uh, it's time now for these technology executives, if they're not already there, and thankfully there are a lot of them that do recognize this already, that mm -hmm. you, you are an essential element, a, a key strategic executive and team within the organization for where the business, where all businesses are going. Now that so many businesses refer to themselves as a technology business in the fill in the blank industry and mean it, well then who better than the technology and digital team to help shape that vision for the future. Yes, who better indeed. I could not agree with you more on that one, but as we know, I'm very biased on the, on the the side of our CIOs and I remember asking one of them, you know, what it, what does he wish he had done earlier in his career and I've asked several people this and almost always they tell me they wish they'd had the courage to speak up more productively, more positively with, you know, with more emphasis to their business colleagues because they ended up feeling like, well, that's not really my area and of course for CIOs, it's all their area. You know, I used to, we used to talk about the helicopter view of the whole company that, that technology executives have. And I've started referring to it now as a central nervous system. And you want your central nervous system to be keeping you alert, right? <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me today, Peter. It's been, it's been a wonderful conversation and it was just great having you here. Thank you. It's a great pleasure, Mary Fran. Any opportunity to speak with you is always welcomed. And thank you so much for having me. Truly my pleasure. If you joined us late today, do not despair. You can watch the full episode later today right here on LinkedIn or also on CIO.com later today and on YouTube's IDG Tech Talk channel. CIO Leadership Live is also available as an audio podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope you enjoyed and learned from today's conversation with Peter High of Meta Strategy as much as I did. And that you'll join me for our next episode of the program on Wednesday, April 7th. I will be joined again at 12 noon Eastern live when I'll be joined by CIO Devin Valencia of CareSource, which is an Ohio-based health insurance provider. Thanks again for joining us today and please do take a moment to sign into the YouTube channel IDG Tech Talk. We have well more than 60 of these CIO Leadership Live shows all there in a nice accessible library and you can see any of the previous episodes and as Peter and I have done throughout our careers you can be learning from your CIO colleagues. Stay well out there and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.
This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.